Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It is Friday, November 11th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week. Before we get started, let's say a quick thank you on this Veterans Day to all those who have served our country in the military and to the families of those that made the ultimate sacrifice. You bet. On Veterans Day, Rich, I think this is more than appropriate to that, say thank you. I should say that the voice you're hearing is that of uh, Steve Swiggum, former Speaker of the House of the uh, uh, House of Representatives in Minnesota and a, uh, a great admirer of, uh, of the American military and uh, the veterans. The American as dream. As we all are. The American dream. The American, de- <laughs> the American deed as well. But uh, this summer, Rich, uh, my wife and I, Debbie, took a trip of a lifetime that we wanted to take for a long time, and that was uh, to go to Normandy. Yeah. And, uh, Rich, I know I've told you about the experience. Mm-hmm. It was, everybody in this country, I believe, needs to go to Normandy and feel the emotion, the passion, the sacrifice that was done by so many there. Uh, the stories of uh, what took place uh, on that D-Day back in uh, 1944, I yep, assume. Yep. Um, it was a, um, a, just the a most tremendous sacrifice. And I'm going to take it a step further, Rich. Having been there, uh, I was there with a ceremony. We laid the wreath. Uh, you know, we uh, sang the national, Fantastic. played the national anthem. And there wasn't a dry oh, eye sure. yeah. in the crowd, Rich. Right. There was not. And, and I'm going to take this step further and say if everybody in this country could go to Normandy and, and feel the passion, the sacrifice, I, I, <clears throat> I just think we would be a lot closer together. I think the polarized ends of the right and left would come more to the middle. I, I, I would tend to agree I, with that. I think it would bring us together as a country and what our reason for existence and our mission is as, a, as a, the American dream. I, uh, I, 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 I've not been. <clears throat> To Normandy, it's a uh, for me. It's a, it's high atop my bucket list. I would really like to get there. Um, so I, thank you, veterans. Y- thank indeed. you sincerely. Indeed, uh, I am the son of a Navy man, and uh, I, I have a uh, great, great respect for those who served. And I do. I want to. I want to echo your thoughts and thank those uh, the veterans out there. Son of a Navy man. That's awesome. I've been called the son. Of, uh, okay. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> we'll leave. Oh, just a little election day humor, folks. All right. right. So this is Public Policy This Week, a show dedicated to the discussion of comprehensive, integrated public policy discussions. Here, we stay away from politics to the greatest extent possible to focus on policy. And we bring on guests who are experts in their field to learn about policy challenges and opportunities. Today, the show will be hosted by myself, Rich Larson. I am the news director here at KYMN Radio. And the man sitting across from me, of course, is Steve Swiggum. Steve is a farmer and an educator. For nearly 30 years, he served as a member of the Minnesota House of Representatives. And for the final eight years of his time there, Steve was the Speaker of the House. We're going to lean on Steve's expertise today as we discuss Tuesday's midterm elections. And folks, just as a disclaimer, we normally try to focus on policy discussions on this show. But when the topic is a just-concluded election, as we're going to talk about today, uh, it's impossible to stay away from the politics. And we are joined by an esteemed guest. Catherine Pearson. She is an expert, uh, Rich. She is an expert. And uh, most people listening to this radio program here on Friday will have either heard or seen Catherine over the last three days. Yes. I, I think I've heard and seen her a half a dozen times. And Catherine, let me first say, 
uh, as a region of the University of Minnesota, we are very proud of you. Uh, when, when I see your picture, when I hear your voice, it, it makes me very, very proud that you're part of the University of Minnesota. Uh, professor Pearson is an associate professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. Catherine has focused on Congress, the congressional elections, political parties, and women, and politics. She is the author of the book Party Discipline in the House of Representatives. Uh, I never had any when I was speaker, but I like <laughs> never. I had good people, but not much discipline. And the forthcoming uh, gendered partisanship in the House of Representatives. Uh, Professor Pearson, thank you so much for joining us today and being with us on this uh, aftermath of the election on Tuesday. Oh, thank you. It is my pleasure to be with you today. I look forward to the discussion. Uh, we, uh, we always like to start these conversations, uh, Professor Pearson, by asking where you are. Where are you joining us from today? Ah, I am on the campus of the University of Minnesota um, on the West Bank, looking at the Mississippi River uh, in the Social Sciences Building before I go teach my class this morning. Very nice. And we, we are very fortunate to have you just before you go, uh, you go to teach today. So uh, thank you so much for giving us this time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's get started. Another election season has come and gone for the most part uh, in this country and has, has been the case for many years now. It leaves a lot of questions in its wake. As we get started, uh, Professor Pearson, can I please ask you, and maybe I would pose this question also to my co-host, uh, Mr. Swiggum, from a very broad perspective, what do you make of the 2022 midterm elections? Was this election really the, the, the victory the Democrats are claiming, or is this more about high expectations set by and for the Republican Party that were not met? Professor Pearson, we'll go with you first. Well, as I explained to my students, historically, midterm elections are a referendum on the sitting president. And only in only three election cycles in the last century uh, has the party of in the in the White House picked up seats in a midterm election. And so because President Biden is not very popular, his approval ratings hover in the low 40s, um, there were wide expectations uh, from, you know, set not just by Republicans, but from analysts, political scientists, that Republicans would put, pick up a lot of seats in the House, uh, in state legislatures, in governor's mansions in this midterm election, um, because that is the historical trend and because President Biden is not very popular. But this election really, unlike most midterms, does not seem to have been so much of a referendum on President Biden, but rather a choice for voters between two parties. And we are a country that is relatively evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans. And so I think both Democrats and Republicans turned out to vote in relatively high numbers for a midterm election, prioritizing different issues. And that's why we're seeing uh, a better night for Democrats than expected and such close margins between the two parties. Um, may I just a little yeah, bit? And I yeah. think Catherine is absolutely right. Uh, obviously, the conventional wisdom of midterms is not conventional anymore. It's <laughs> unconventional. And, and I think I might add this. Um, I, well, Catherine started out in saying that it's usually a referendum on the sitting president. I think to some degree, this might have also been a referendum on the former president, um, uh, obviously meaning Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, that he had a, a, a significant effect, negative mm -hmm. effect, on a number of races around the country uh, in the general election. Um, 
Now, I, I do know that the red wave that was anticipated, that Catherine mentioned was anticipated, mm-hmm. actually became a red puddle. <laughs> Uh, it, it was not a wave. It came, became just the, uh, the opposite. But there's still, uh, you know, some for Republicans around the country, there's some, still some silver, silver lining. Uh, not in Minnesota, <laughs> but, <laughs> but around the country. So, uh, Catherine, every U.S. Senate seat was up for election. Uh, 30, uh, no, 35 U.S. Senate seats. Every U.S. House seat was up for election. And 36 governors uh, were on the ballot. The red wave did not seem to materialize. Um, right now, it looks like Republicans will pick up the U.S. House by a few votes. Um, it looks like the Senate's still narrow. It's probably going to be decided on December 6th mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, runoff in Georgia. Uh, give us a little background of why the red wave, the anticipated red wave, did not happen. Well, uh, as you as you know, uh, it was not just a referendum on President Biden, but also on President Trump. And I think we can really former President Trump. And I think we can really see that uh, exemplified in Florida. Um, Florida is a state where if you look at analysis county by county, uh, actually, Republicans did do significantly better in Florida in 2022 than they did in 2020. Uh, We saw uh, an early victory for for, uh, DeSantis. We saw uh, an easy victory for Rubio, and that was a race that was supposed to be somewhat competitive. And so Republicans did do very well in Florida. And of course, we have DeSantis, who is emerging as the Republican potential alternative to former President Trump in the nominating contest. And so I think we saw in many other places, uh, candidates that were endorsed by Trump, especially early on in Republican primaries, not do well. So I'm thinking of Pennsylvania in particular, uh, a very competitive state, a swing state that you know often switches between the two parties. But in a year that favors Republicans because Democrats hold the White House, uh, this is, of course, a pickup for Democrats with um, the defeat of uh, Trump's endorsed candidate, uh, Mehmet Oz. And so... It, So I think that sort of shows that it's not just about uh, partisan tides and partisan politics, but also candidate quality matters as well. Um, We also see in Georgia, of course, a runoff election, as you noted, um, happening on December 6th. On the other hand, Brian Kemp, the gubernatorial candidate, won relatively early in the night uh, against second-time challenger Democrat Stacey Abrams. Um, of course, Kemp is another Republican who has distanced himself um, from former President Trump. Uh, so so Democrats um, still probably lost the House of Representatives, but the fact that that has not yet been called and there's still a number of races uh, still to go really is quite striking. I think, yes, at the end of the day, Republicans will have a narrow majority um, uh, as the party in charge in the House, which will make um, life more challenging for President Biden in Washington. Um, but, But quite a night with mixed results for both parties, but definitely a night where Democrats did better than expected. Professor Pearson, I, <laughs> I've been reluctant to ask this question only because on this show we we, we try to stay away from politics, but I, I can't help myself with this one. Um, Governor Kemp in Georgia pretty easily defeated Stacey Abrams, and um, that wasn't the case four years ago. She was she she the the margin of victory was much much closer. What in your opinion, and Steve, maybe I might ask you this too. In your opinions, what what is the difference this time around? 
Well, notwithstanding sort of everything we just have talked about, right. the fact that it really has not been a Republican wave as anticipated, the electoral context in 2018 was much better for Democrats than for Republicans. And the overall electoral context in 2022 was better for Republicans than Democrats. And Democratic candidates across the country did extremely well in, in 2018. That was clearly a referendum on President Trump. Democrats were more motivated to vote in, in 2018. Uh, and of course, we saw that with uh, with the results in the House of Representatives in 2018. And so that dynamic in, in 2018 really helped Abrams come very close um, in a way that, you know, she was not helped by a Democratic wave in 2022. Right. Catherine, um, going to the U.S. Senate, and, and we get into a number of races here, but the U.S. Senate, with the slowness of the vote count in Arizona, in Nevada, California, I'm going to make a guess right here. Now, I might be wrong, and you might correct me, but I I think Nevada might go Republican. I think Arizona is is going to go Democrat. Mr. Kelly, I think, is going to win there. So that does bring us down for control of the Senate to uh, Georgia, to the Warnock-Walker race down there on December 6th. Um, Tell me a little bit about that race in Georgia. If, in fact, I'm right about Nevada and Arizona, and I might be all wrong there, uh, but tell us about that race in Georgia. What's the focus going to be for the next month? Uh, is Trump going to be there? Is Biden going to be there? Are both candidates going to say, stay out of the state, stay out of the state? <laughs> we can't afford you to come in. What's the dynamics going to be like in Georgia? Well, sort of. Eerily enough, we can look to uh, a special election two years ago to give us some guidance. Um, In Georgia, by the way, right? Right, in Georgia. Control of the Senate two years ago uh, hinged on um, two special elections in Georgia. And so it is sort of amazing that this is potentially happening one more time, uh, this time on December 6th. And so the conventional wisdom two years ago was that Democrats would be disadvantaged in a special election um, because Democrats have uh, are less likely to turn out sort of all else equal than Republicans. We saw two years ago that, in fact, was not the case. Um, Democrats did turn out two years ago uh, in that special election. But I think that we will definitely uh, be able to see a lot of mobilization from both parties. And President, former President Trump did uh, endorse and encourage Walker in Georgia in the first place. And so I actually would expect that, that we might see former President Trump in Georgia, we might see President Biden in Georgia, as a special election is really about turnout. It's about mobilizing that base in, election, in an election that only has one race on the ballot. And so I think that given the significance of voter mobilization, we're likely to see, you know, millions of dollars and a lot of surrogates from both parties coming down to campaign uh, for their party's candidate. It might be, Catherine, it might be hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, yes. It's, yes. it's going to be rather significant. Do you remember what the voter turnout was there in the special election two years ago in Georgia? Did they hit 50 percent? I, I confess I do not remember, but I just remember thinking it was strikingly high for a special election. Well, people will be motivated. There's, there's no doubt about it. No question. Um, on the, on the ballot, um, besides all the different candidates that we talked about uh, in the House, Senate, and, uh, and the governorships around the country, were uh, a, a number of referendums. Uh, striking of those referendums were in the five states were uh, issues about reproductive rights or the abortion issue as a result of uh, 
<clears throat> the repeal of uh, Roe v. Wade last summer. Um, Catherine, did the results of all five states surprise you at all? There was a more liberal state, there was a more conservative state, but but all uh, the results of all five referendums seem to be telling of the issue of how people in the country feel about the abortion issue. That's right. Uh, and what was striking about these five uh, referendum is that in uh, every case um, in California, Kentucky, Michigan, Montana, and Vermont, um, the pro-choice position on the referendum outperformed the performance of uh, the Democrat at the top of the ticket. Um, actually, there was no race in Montana, but in California, Kentucky, Michigan, and Vermont, um, the the pro-choice position, uh, again, did better than, than the Democrat at, at the top, which just shows you that abortion is an important issue for voters, but for some voters, it is not important enough to sort of switch their party. In other words, uh, Republicans in those states, uh, some Republicans, not a majority, but some Republicans were voting for the pro-choice position on the referendum, but then for the Republican candidate. Um, but it also just shows that abortion was uh, an important issue, maybe not the most important issue, but it was an important issue in this election, um, again, particularly in states uh, where voters were primed to think about it. So, Catherine, what was the most important issue? Was it inflation? Was it uh, uh, crime? Uh, law and order? Well, looking, was it abortion? Right. Was looking it at the, the national polls, uh, the economy and the combination of the economy and, and inflation pretty consistently topped the list. But which, the fact which should that have meant that Republicans would have won, I would have thought. But uh, Maybe my assumption is wrong, but if that was the most important issue, which includes then inflation, spending, the economy, jobs, I would have thought the red wave would have happened. And I largely agree with you with a couple of caveats. Um, if you look at national polls, uh, Republicans are considered the party that does a better job handling the economy and handling inflation. Add to that, the sitting president is a Democrat, um, taking the blame, rightly or wrongly, uh, for the economy and inflation. And so that does advantage Republicans. Um, that said, partisans view the economy through a partisan lens. Um, and, and what that means is that Democratic voters uh, were also paying attention to ads, especially near the end of the cycle in competitive races, where Democrats were also attacking Republicans um, on uh, sort of their positions on the economy, uh, or in some cases, a lack of a plan for the economy if uh, if elected. And so there's no doubt that the issue of the economy helped Republicans more than Democrats, but Democrats did try to mitigate some of the damage. Um, and the economy was more likely to sway independent voters um, who don't, you know, aren't previously inclined to show up for one party or the other, and independent voters are less likely to vote in a midterm election than in a presidential year. Uh, Professor Pearson, this was a, re a redistricting year, uh, and you throw a dart at any congressional district in the country, it, it doesn't take much uh, to, to uh, realize the gerrymander is alive and well. Both parties worked very hard uh, to create districts uh, that would benefit them. Um, do you see the effects of partisan redistricting in this election um, was a practice effective this year or did it backfire anywhere? 
So a, a couple of things. So the vast majority of House districts uh, in at the federal level and legislative districts at the state level are not competitive. Um, and part of that is due to partisan gerrymanders. And part of that to, is due to geographic sorting. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Minnesota, we actually don't have partisan gerrymanders. Uh, a three-judge panel did redistricting this cycle, as has happened in the past couple of cycles. And so in uh, a state without partisan gerrymanders, gerrymandering, we still have a lot of uh, congressional districts and legislative districts that strongly favor one party of the other, sort of absent gerrymandering. Um, that said, partisan gerrymanders can make a difference. And some research by uh, a political scientist, Eric McGee, um, on redistricting this cycle overall has shown that both Democrats and Republicans, when they enjoy unified party control of a state and have the power to enact partisan gerrymanders, have done so. But in this particular cycle, Republicans were advantaged uh, with party control of many more um, states. And so there were more gerrymandered seats in Republicans' favor than in Democrats' favor. And if Republicans wind up with a majority of only a couple of seats in the House, um, that could have been a real contributing force. Um, but many of the, of the seats that we see that are not competitive are not a function of gerrymandering, but more of geographical sorting in a partisan way. Catherine, I love listening to your answers and the knowledge you have. I'm, I'm just sitting here shaking my head. I, I know you can't see that on the radio, but when my head is going up and down, that's, that's, that's sideways. Uh, Catherine, in, in Minnesota, a um, number of years ago when I was speaker or even before when I was minority leader, I'd stay up all night and try to see where our candidates are winning, where they're losing. But to tell you, there was one county, Anoka, Anoka County was the bellwether of, Minnesota, of the state. No matter, however Anoka County went, and they usually came in with the results early, the rest of the state would go. If you look back in the late or in the 90s and the 2000s, that's absolutely true. Anoka was the bellwether. Countrywide, Florida and Ohio were once considered to be swing states. Uh, in fact, Ohio was considered to be the bellwether uh, state of the country. Um, I don't know that that's true anymore. It looks like they're now gone to Republican strongholds, both uh, Florida and Ohio. And Pennsylvania, which was a swing, swing state, is now considered, I think, pretty blue, uh, pretty Democrat. Um, what are the swing states in the country now? You know, if, what does it mean for future elections? Where would we look for that bellwether state or states in 2024? That is such a great question. And I think that in the next couple of uh, years, we will certainly learn even more about that. Um, and uh, right, Florida and Ohio uh, at, at the state level are quite reliably red now. Um, that said, I think Tim Ryan's candidacy in Ohio did help in some of the House races uh, elect Democrats in some competitive House races. But the Senate race wasn't really even close, um, even though even though people thought it could be. Um, Pennsylvania, I actually would continue to put in a swing state category. I think uh, a Republican candidate who was stronger than than Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, could have defeated Fetterman in, in Pennsylvania. So I, I would actually still put that in the swing state, state territory. Um, and I suspect both parties will in 2024. But Michigan, Wisconsin, um, you know, our neighbor, our neighboring state, definitely swing states. Um, if you look at the results in Wisconsin statewide, really quite striking in the sense that Tony Evers is reelected um, governor uh, fairly narrowly. And then Republican Ron Johnson is reelected as Senator 
senator fairly narrowly. So Wisconsin, we see a um, a pretty closely divided seat. Now, at the legislative level, Republicans have a huge advantage, and that is a function of gerrymandering. Professor Pearson, do you think we'll start talking about Georgia as a swing state? Yes. Yes. I certainly should have added that. Per yeah. our conversation earlier, Georgia is um, is now in the swing state category, which is is striking given, um, you know, for the last couple of decades, how strongly Republican it has gone. Of course, historically, uh, you know, up until the 1970s, uh, 80s, Georgia was a very Democratic state, um, but a mix of both conservative liberal and moderate Democrats. Yeah, in my adult life, and I'm 53, I don't think I would have ever expected anyone to use the words Georgia and swing state in the uh, same sentence. Uh, for our listeners. Right. And, and, and oh, then, go oh, sorry. no, go ahead, please. And then I was going to say some of the southwestern states, of course, that we're seeing Nevada, Arizona, um, swing states as well, um, as we're witnessing as they're still counting Senate votes. All right. For our listeners, you're listening to 95.1 FM and AM 1080 KYMN Radio in beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. This is Public Policy This Week. My name is Rich Larson, and alongside Steve Swigum, we are talking to political science professor Catherine Pearson of the University of Minnesota about the midterm elections. Okay, Professor Pearson, Maxwell Frost became the first member of Gen Z to be elected to Congress on Tuesday night. Um, I'm start, we're starting to get some information about voter turnout, which is looking to be very high. Um, uh, but we don't know the makeup of the electorate just yet. It has been speculated uh, that Gen Z voters might have been the block that kept a, the, uh, the Republican landslide from, from happening. What can we make of this latest generation of voters? And how should that affect policymaking over the next few years? Well, we know from exit polls in the 2020 elections that they are the most uh, Democratic, uh, big D Democratic, uh, as opposed to Republican cohort in the electorate. Um, this is a group that uh, that is more liberal than the rest of the electorate. Um, and uh, as is typical, it's also the group that votes uh, at the lowest rate. Um, that is always true of the 18 to 29 year old block. They're more residentially mobile, they're less habituated to voting, but it seems um, that the gap between turnout between the youngest cohort and older cohorts is shrinking. Um, we don't know the final results uh, for this year, but I suspect we will see that the gap is much smaller. Um, I still suspect that voters 65 and older voted at the highest rate. Um, but I think that the increase in turnout among this uh, younger group is really striking and has important political implications. Um, because for the most part, politicians pay more attention to the voting blocks that vote more frequently. And so I think that politicians will really begin to um, pay more attention to to this younger block. And I'm sure incoming Representative uh, Frost will make sure of that. (laughs) (laughs) Gen Z is definitely a a, a very liberal block. Is that, I mean, that's the case generally for the lowest block of voters, kind of historically, Right. Historically, yes, except that the differences here are actually more pronounced. Interesting. Um, There is both sort of an age and a cohort effect. And the cohort effect here is strong, where this group really is voting uh, at a higher rate for Democrats than than older groups did when they were in that age group. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Rich, uh, we're kind of maybe showing my age or your age when I say (laughs) this, but. Remember when we were back in college, I forget who had the quote, but it was a quote that said, uh, if you're uh, 20 and you don't vote Democrat, you don't have a heart. 
And if you're 40 and you don't vote Republican, you don't have a hat. Remember, my, somebody... my dad used to throw that quote at me all the time because he hated the way I voted. And I th- he would always attribute it to Winston Churchill. Was it Churchill? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if it was actually Churchill or not, but that's, uh, yeah. Well, let's attribute it to Winston. Okay. That oh, that's anyway. a good, I'm good with that. And I think political scientists would push back a little bit on that and suggest that partisan identification for many people is actually more central and more enduring than that quote would actually suggest. Um, I think that, you know, for some people, uh, they're not strongly attached to a party, but uh, survey research data shows that today people tend to have a stronger partisan attachment than perhaps uh, they did in, in previous decades. People feel more strongly about their party identification. Yeah, and Catherine, I'm sure you're right. What you what you couldn't see is Rich and I were both smiling <laughs> when we <laughs> when we uh, took back that quote for many many years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely, uh, uh, Catherine, we we talked about this to begin the program, and that was a little bit about uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I I think Democrats did a very very good job for two years of keeping Donald Trump in the news. Uh, the January sixth uh, um, insurrection or what a riot, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, keeping it in hearings. Uh, the, I I think there was certainly a strategy on that side to keep Donald Trump alive for uh, uh, politically for a number of reasons, probably for the negative standpoint of, of Trump. Tell me, as we looked around the results of the the election, uh, uh, you you ha- is Trump's leadership in the Republican Party over? Uh, from from Chris Sununu in New Hampshire to Mike DeWine in Ohio to Ron DeSantis in Florida, who might be Trump's biggest rival if they choose to run in 2000, or 2024. Can we say Trump's control over the Republican Party is finished or not? That is the narrative that has emerged from this election cycle. All you have to do is turn on the radio or uh, the TV for commentators to be asking that question and talking about that. So it's the fact that the narrative is sort of continuing and feeding itself um, uh, helps make it a more likely possibility. That said, um, he, former President Trump has said he will make an announcement on November 15th. I think everyone is assuming that that announcement will be that he plans to run for president again, um, though he does like to keep people guessing. Um, <laughs> and I think it will be very interesting to see what the reaction is there. Um, it certainly was a very bad night electorally uh, for the former president with his key candidates, either um, the votes are either still being counted or uh, these key candidates losing. And so it will be interesting to see how Republican leaders react to whatever announcement he makes on November 15th and how um, Governor DeSantis uh, reacts as well. Um, I think that there's no doubt that the 2022 midterms um, have made it more difficult for the former president to emerge as the front runner um, than perhaps we would have thought a week ago. Yeah, I think uh, Tuesday night was uh, was a, a nail in the coffin for former President Trump. Uh, you look around the country, uh, a number of candidates around the, in the various states that he endorsed in the primary won the primary contests uh, this summer. But those most of, many of those candidates went on to lose the general election on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I would tell you the Trump-endorsed candidates lost on Tuesday. They won the primary and they lost on Tuesday around the country. At least that seemed to be the, uh, the general direction that I was reading. In Minnesota, I thought it was really interesting that uh, Scott Jensen received uh, uh, Trump's endorsement 
and Jensen could not have run farther away from that. You know, he 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 didn't want anything to. It's what it looked like. He didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah, I observe that as well because in Minnesota, it's not helpful. It is not helpful with sort of the Republican leaners or the independent voters. All right. Well, sticking closer to home, then um, I think a lot of Minnesota Republicans um, and a lot of Minnesotans, just in general, I would I would include myself in that in general part, be- began the year thinking the the party would take the governor's race, flip the House of Representatives, and maintain control of the Senate in St. Paul. Uh, the opposite has happened instead, and um, uh, the DFL will now control all three of those branches for the next two years at least. What does this mean? for Governor Tim Walz's agenda, Professor Pearson, and what policy efforts can we expect from a D, from DFL control of St. Paul? This is incredibly significant for uh, Governor Waltz and his agenda. For the last couple of years, sort of even beyond um, uh, co- managing COVID um, and the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, uh, Governor Waltz has been frustrated um, by not being able to pass key legislation uh, in a bipartisan fashion with Republicans. Um, so even with a, a massive surplus, um, Republicans and DFLers in St. Paul were not able to come together uh, and forge a compromise. And so the fact that Governor Waltz will have unified party control in St. Paul is very significant for the governor's agenda as he thinks about the surplus um, and and how to manage that and also other issues such as uh, the legalization of marijuana. Um, So it's extraordinarily significant. That said, uh, there will be high expectations uh, placed on Governor Waltz, uh, both by DFLers um, and and Minnesotans more broadly, and the margins are so, so thin. Uh, One seat in the Senate. And so Governor Waltz will still have to uh, work on compromises, even if many of those compromises are within his own caucus. I think a couple of things there, Catherine, that might happen, and I'm sure will happen, the $9 million surplus that Minnesota has right now, it's going to be gone. It's going to be spent one way or another. Yeah, I can yeah. almost guarantee that. And I'll almost guarantee that there will be a rather significant large bonding bill uh, passed in the first year of the session. I think we've gone two years without a bonding mm-hmm. bill now for whatever yeah. reason. Uh, but I think those two things will happen and happen fairly quickly. Yeah. Uh, two quick questions. Um, first of all, the last time I remember the DFL having c- complete control of of uh the house the senate and the governor's uh, mansion um they couldn't agree among themselves about anything and there was no uh there was there there was no meaningful legislation passed that uh, those those two sessions um the margins of of uh of of uh majority are, are closer this time around so it's maybe unfair to just sort of point a finger at one party and say you guys got to get your act together but do we see signs that the dfl will be able to get its act together or, or, or act as a unified party this time around that's a great question and i think it's a question that you know dflers need to ask themselves as they think about their uh party leadership contests that are that are Mm-hmm. Uh, happening. But I also think there is a lot of pent up demand um, and the recognition that the last two years did not go well um, uh, in St. Paul and and that compromise will be necessary. Now, will it be difficult? Yes. Um, but but I suspect that there is a sense of 
gratitude and surprise that DFLers um, sort of have been given this opportunity by the voters, um, even if extremely narrowly, and that, that at least initially they will not take that for granted. The other flip, maybe the flip side of that question is, do you think, and Steve, I'd ask you this question too, do you think the strategy for the Republicans coming into the session this year was, well, we're going to, we're going to clean house in the, uh, in the election. And so we don't necessarily have to give uh, a whole lot of compromise on what we want. I, I think that certainly was a strategy of some during the last legislative session, meaning last spring, mm-hmm. last summer. Yep. Um, I think the uh, Republicans, Democrats, government were very, very close to an agreement on how to uh, spend the $9 billion yep. surplus. Uh, but there were those who said, well, let's wait until after the next election and we can spend it all ourselves, (laughs) divide it all ourselves. Catherine, this amazes me in Minnesota, which it was at least perceived as being somewhat of a a swing state. Uh, But with uh, Attorney General Ellison winning a very, very narrow, uh, razor-thin margin in an election on Tuesday night, uh, State Auditor uh, Julie Blaha also winning razor-thin, I think it's been 16 years, one six, 16 years before a Republican has won a statewide race in um, in Minnesota. And that, of course, was my very, very good friend, Tim Pawlenty, in 2006. Um, are we no longer a swing state? Uh, uh, is there, uh, what's the chance the Republicans, or how are they going to regain the potential of, of winning a statewide race, which we have not done in 16 years. Right. So I think Minnesota is a state where both parties are competitive, uh, but it is a state that leans uh, Democratic. But it's also a state where either party could conceivably win. I mean, after all, uh, Republicans uh, until uh, this January have controlled the state Senate. The congressional delegation is 4-4. Um, voters uh, are more efficiently distributed in legislative districts for Republicans, whereas DFLers just have huge, huge majorities in Hennepin and Ramsey County, which helps push DFL candidates over the top at the state level. Um, But I think it is a state where, in a favorable context, a very strong Republican candidate could win. Um, And as you noted, two of the statewide races were pretty close uh, on Tuesday night. But it's a state that that narrowly favors Democrats uh, at the statewide level. And again, that's because of the big, big margins for DFLers and Hennepin and Ramsey counties. And we saw that dynamic at play again um, on Tuesday night. So did on Tuesday night, did uh, 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 Scott Jensen, did he win 82 of 87 counties? But, I think but, that is correct. But but with the significant uh, uh, significant vote total, obviously in Ramsey and Hennepin, was not able right. to overcome. I mean, you look at you look at the red blue of Minnesota. If you looked at map, mm-hmm. you say it's ninety five percent blue <laughs> right. or ninety five percent red. red yeah. Excuse me, ninety five percent red. Yeah. But those blue blue spots are, are blue. really blue. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Right. With Hennepin and uh, Hennepin and Ramsey counties, 350,000 more DFL voters. All right. Sort of the difference between the two parties. Yeah. I want to I'm going to put you both on the spot here. And and, uh, Professor Pearson, this might be unfair to you because I'm not sure exactly how much you pay attention to Minnesota politics. But is there that strong candidate for the Republicans in Minnesota? Is there a person that we could maybe point to that might be able to challenge 
uh, for the governorship next time or an Amy Klobuchar or a Tina Smith uh, in, in the next few elections? Do either one of you see that person? Wow. Catherine. <laughs> that, that is a great question. I, and I'm, I'm really thinking of actually Minnesota's House delegation, mm-hmm. um, because there are certainly some effective Republicans in Minnesota's House delegation. But uh, but Tom Emmer is one of them and obviously did not do well as a gubernatorial candidate uh, in Minnesota in 2010, although I think his political skills um, have really improved dramatically since then. And depending on what happens, he may be poised for a leadership, a higher leadership position um, in the House Republican conference, although as Republicans did not enjoy the wave they were hoping for in the house um i think that will hurt him in his leadership bid uh well i i, I would tend to disagree Catherine. i think tom is in a pretty good shape to become the uh, the third ranking republican in congress at this point uh, yeah. um you know obviously we didn't the republicans didn't do as well as they had hoped i think at one time when i talked to mr emmer they talked about picking up 40 seats wow uh, now it might be, Catherine, 10 seats. Is that a potential that they would pick up 10 with the majority? They needed five, and I think I think right. it's probably leaning towards 10. I, that's that's where the races that are still being counted are leaning, that I think that's realistic. Okay. Um, I'm going to refrain from talking about Minnesota <laughs> itself. <laughs> uh, this is the first question of yours I've ducked, Rich, uh, here. But, uh, I have just too many friends uh, I, I that are involved there that I'd, I'd hate to pick one name over another. But on a national-wide basis, yes, sir. on a national-wide basis, to kind of take your, your question mm-hmm. to a bigger uh, uh, picture, uh, I think certainly DeSantis has positioned himself very well. I think I'm a really strong supporter of of Nikki Haley mm-hmm. uh, and Marco Rubio, uh, mm-hmm. who uh, Catherine has spoke about a little bit right mm-hmm. here, who did very very well in this yep. election. Yep. So I think a combination in 2024 of Haley Rubio or Ruby De, uh, Haley DeSantis. Yep. It can't be Rubio and DeSantis because they're both from Florida, right. so that wouldn't right. that wouldn't work. But I, those would be a, a couple three names that I think on a national basis are. Uh, and, and maybe even put in Abbott from Texas as a possibility. Interesting. Yeah, I'm already personally. I'm already hearing rumors of uh, DeSantis Haley in 2024, which would I mean that wouldn't surprise me at least. Uh, I'll send my dollars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're not going to get political on this show, no, right? Of course not, Steve. No, we're not going to do that. Um, well, we're, we're we're coming to the end of the time here. We have to uh, send Professor Pearson off to her classroom. Professor Pearson, is there anything that we didn't touch on? Uh, something we missed that you think uh, is of note from this election? Well, that that's a great question. And I know that we've already been talking a lot about 2024 because clearly um, for uh, former President Trump's future, 2022 does have tremendous implications. Um, But I also would remind listeners that midterms are less predictive of how a party will do in um, 
in a presidential election than we might think. Um, so if we think back to 1994, when Republicans gained party control of the U.S. House for the first time in 40 years and President Clinton was extremely unpopular, you know, two years later, he was pretty easily reelected. Um, sort of, you know, similar dynamic with, uh, with President Obama in 2010 when Democrats did so poorly. And so midterm elections don't necessarily uh, sort of set the stage for the presidential cycle. But I think this year's the exception in, in terms of the effects on the Republican nominating contest. Catherine, the uh, U.S. House goes Republican by, let's say, 10. Uh, you, you obviously have the sitting uh, Democratic governor and, and Mr. Biden. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot before I let you go <laughs> right now to your class. <laughs> and I'm going to uh, go to December 6th. Uh, Warnock and Walker, Georgia. I, I do believe it's probably going to come down to that race for the control of the U.S. Senate. I, um, I, I as I mentioned earlier, Nevada goes Republican, uh, Arizona goes Democrat. Um, if it comes down to Georgia, a special election, December 6th, uh, prognosticate it for us. Tell us what's going to happen, Catherine. Well, <laughs> I'll flip a coin here and then make my <laughs> that's, that's so about I what I would have done. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, Warnock had a slight edge, but of course, there was the presence of a libertarian candidate, and probably there were a few Republicans who, you know, couldn't vote for Walker or uh, or Warnock, and so went went for the libertarian. So I think it, both parties will be extraordinarily mobilized. Um, and at one level, of course, it will matter. It'll matter greatly for President Biden's nominations, whether or not uh, Democrats control the Judiciary Committee or not. But on the other hand, with the Republican-controlled House, um, there's not going to be a, a big Democratic policy agenda um, coming out of Congress to the White House anyway. Yeah. And that Libertarian Party candidate in um, in Georgia got about one and a half percent, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know where that one and a half percent is going to go, but but the whole focus of this uh, country for the next thirty days. Yep. A uh, little less than thirty days is going to be on Georgia. You can't imagine how much money is going to pour in there. I can imagine quite a bit, but yeah, you're right. There's going to be a lot of money going in there. Catherine, we have certainly enjoyed having you with us here uh, on this forum. Um, uh, that You're so gracious with your time. You're so gracious with your comments. You're thoughtful. And again, uh, Catherine, I want you to know that you make me proud when I get to see you or hear you uh, being part of the University of Minnesota. You make me proud. Oh, thank you, Regent Swigum. I really appreciate that. And it was great to be with you with you both. Thank you. Uh, thank you. So I want to echo uh, uh, Steve's uh, comments. You were, this was fantastic. We really do appreciate the, uh, the conversation. To our listeners, uh, please tell your family and friends about public policy this week. Remember, it is our hope that this show will uh, get us back to having meaningful, in-depth, and civil conversations. If Steve Swigum and I can sit across the desk from each other and have uh, a good conversation about politics, and I think anybody can. And, uh, um, you know, this, this show is about uh, the challenges that we all share together as Minnesotans and, and as Americans. We want people to be armed with the facts and data to hear from policy experts and for you to be able to use information from our shows to decide where you stand on these highly complex public policy issues. And Rich, if I can close today on this Veterans Day yes, by saying, um, as we started, uh, appreciate, thank our veterans for what Indeed. they've given this country. And 
maybe, just maybe on this Veterans Day, we can all come just a little bit closer together, a little bit more uh, in line with that American dream that has... Uh, you know, is a beacon of, of freedom in this whole world. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Professor Pearson, thank you once again. Oh, my pleasure. Great to talk with you both. Thank, thank you so much. Thank yeah. you, Catherine. You can find the recording of this show on our website at kymnradio.net or on your favorite podcast service under Public Policy This Week. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.